Have you ever heard the old adage, if you don't aim at anything, you're bound to hit it when? Every single time. That's why it's important to put it positively to know where we're going, how we're going to get there, why we should go in that direction, and what would it look like even to begin to move out in that direction. So what we're going to do over the next five weeks here at our Restored Church Sunday morning worship gatherings, we are going to lay out our direction. Nate, where are you? Thank you for once again doing another media piece. That's Nate's uh, creatorship right there. Thank you for that. I have the privilege of leading four other men about three hours-ish once a month, basically from about 7 to 10.30 in the mornings here upstairs through what's called Multiply Church Plant Training. It's a, it's a kind of a, a package. I went away last year to be trained how to be a cohort leader, and now I'm leading a cohort. It's been really helpful now as one of the pastors of an established church, we were planted seven, half, eight years ago, to go through this church planting training again because it, it's helped me lead us as we want to more or less refocus, refine, and recast our vision as a church. So we're going to be looking at what's basically called a vision frame. If you can go to the next slide... And I'm going to say a few more things about the person who put that slide together. Where are you, Emily Magnuson? Incredible job on that. Let me tell you where we're going next few weeks. Next Sunday, October 27th, Pastor Cleet will be preaching on the mission of Restore Church, which is to restore through relationship. A very significant message under the banner of the big picture. The following week, I'll come back and I will be preaching on our map or our strategy, pray, proclaim, people, and plant. Then the third Sunday in this series, November 10th, Pastor Charles is going to walk us through our motives or our values, gospel, glory, and growth. And then week four, we were going to have Nick do this message, but with the baby inbound, just to simplify things, Pastor Cleet will come back, and he's going to talk about our seven marks, our seven measures. How do we know we're moving out in that direction? Now, I've belabored this point because I want us to know as a church family all these things. Emily Magnuson did a great job. She put together about four or five proposals, and then finally did probably a thousand tweaks on this one. She is so patient, because I always saying, can you change this? Can you change this? Can you change this? But what I asked her for was to produce something that would be visual and therefore make it more easy for us to really lay hold of these concepts. See, our hope, our hope is this, that, that you, that we, this family of God called Restore, would all be on the same proverbial sheet of music and that we would increasingly lace our lingo with the language of our mission, of our map and our motives and our marks. Because I really believe, and you think about this, I think there's some truth to it, that the language we use often drives the direction of our lives, does it not? In other words, diction is informs direction. 
Language drives living. How we talk about things usually drives how we live life. And so you're going to get a card when you walk out of here that has this little schematic on it. And we'll have it the next four weeks as well. And our hope is that you will put this with a nice fat magnet up on your refrigerator, that you will put it on your bathroom mirror, take a couple, but that you will, you will become comprehensively aware, aware of what we're about as a church. Because, because again, if you're not aiming at anything, what? You're bound to hit it. But to put it positively, if you know where you're going, how you're going to do it, why you're going to do it, and what the marks are in getting there, well, then you know what? Then we're going to speak clearly and I think make a significant impact, a bigger impact than we've made even thus far. So here's what we're going to do today. Pastor Cleet's going to come and give a brief history. There's so much history he could give. There's so much that's happened, and I think it would be fun probably just to have a lunch or a dinner one night and kind of comprehensively tell our story because I think it's important to look back at those Ebenezer's, what God has done. Then once he's done with that brief summary of our history, I'm going to come up and I'm going to preach basically a big picture message, the reason why we're doing everything that we're doing. Good to go? So Pastor Cleet, wearing a couple hats today, musical worship leader, and now historian. How many of you were here when I used to lead worship every Sunday? Remember the YouTube videos? and Good times, good times. <laughs> no, I'm thankful for what God has done here in and at Restore Church. He is still refining us, um, and so it's a beautiful thing. 2010, Mike and I took a trip from Portland, Oregon to Detroit in the February-March time frame of that year and came to this area to see, A, uh, is this where God wants us? B, was our psychiatrist actually right? Um, and, and probably both were actually true. God wanted us here and our psychiatrist was right. But how did we pick Detroit? We were looking at the Midwest. Both of us were from the Midwest. I'm from northern Indiana. Mike was from Birmingham, um, as he says it. Um, and we were looking at a place that if you look in Acts, that typically people were moving out of. In Acts 1, it says, and he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we realized, as well as a lot of churches realize now, that we were sending a lot of missionaries overseas to the ends of the earth. But why were we neglecting places like Detroit? Now, I want you to hear me. God has not left Detroit. There are many, many good works here in Detroit that stayed here in Detroit and are doing massive things and massive kingdom work. So I don't want you to hear me thinking, we just rode in on this white horse and we're here to save Detroit. That is not but we wanted to be a part of what God is doing in Detroit. I'm not going to throw shade, but how many churches have you heard of have the name of their former city but are somewhere else? Quite a few. And we could even say that around here. Um, and so a lot of churches actually left the area also. 
uh, when you looked at it. So we came 2010. By 2000, the end of that year, both of our families had moved into Detroit. The Hanafis actually stayed six weeks in my house uh, that we were renting, and they got a house right behind us. So what do you do to start a church? What do you do? You don't know anybody. You kind of parachute in. We started having cookouts in 2011. All that summer, we had cookouts. We um, connected with neighbors in those cookouts. We had anywhere from sometimes as low as 30 to almost 100 people at those cookouts at my house on Chicago Boulevard. And it was a cool time to see a neighborhood starting to develop into community. Um, people had not met a lot of the people that they met at our community cookouts. And so we started having every other week services at the house also. So we'd have one week we'd have a service. The next week we'd go visit another church in the area kind of to show, hey, you know what? We're not the only thing in town. Matter of fact, we're not in town really. You have been here for a while. We want to partner and see uh, the gospel go forth. We're not just about our kingdom or this kingdom that, uh, you know, seems to be built in this area sometimes. Um, We put up soccer goals on Saturdays, and we had a bunch of kids coming out and playing indoor soccer outside on tennis courts that uh, were pretty rough shape. And we'd tell a Bible story, and we just kept doing that every Saturday. We didn't even flyer for that, and we were seeing 20 and 30 kids come out that Saturday morning. Um, during that year. We had vision nights over at Mike's house that we would cast vision for those interested in joining us. Um, We had some worship nights, and we got to a point where we were growing uh, out of the room in the living room in my house. So we decided, hey, you know what? Let's go to every week services. And we met in Gordon Park right on Claremont and 12th. If many of you know, that is actually where the 1967 rebellion started. And so that was cool to clean up that park over the couple years and actually start meeting there in that park. And that was 2012 when that happened. All summer, God kept the rain off of us. It might rain right before we'd uh, get ready to start, or it might rain right after but it never rained one time during those services in that park with these little bitty, what were they, uh, Sarah? What were those chairs? Were they, they weren't toddler chairs. They, they fit me really well. Yeah, day camp chairs. They fit me really well. I actually liked them. Um, but regular size adults did not. Um, but we met there all summer. We were looking for a building. God graciously um, gave us this building for $15,000. That's a story for another time, but we walked in here. We could have started selling stamps out the front door. Everything was here, bulletproof glass to the post office boxes, um, safes. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff in this place. And we were able to get that in September of 2012. So we started meeting here. We met upstairs. We were about, I don't know, 40, 50 people at the time. We met upstairs for a number of weeks, and we had to demo some walls in here. There was a wall right along here. There was offices over here. And it just looked completely different than it does now. And that was September 2012. 
fast forward, a lot has happened since then. As, as you see, we've built walls now in here and uh, decorated thanks to Kimberly. Oh, do you don't want the credit? It's beautiful. Um, since then, Charles Bovan has become a pastor here, a lay pastor. Um, what year was that, Charles? He can't remember either. 2015, okay. Um, we had Tyler St. Clair as our church um, church planning resident. He was actually a pastor here. He's a pastor of Cornerstone Church now, which is celebrating today its third year anniversary, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So praise God that Pastor Tyler's doing well, Cornerstone doing well. So three years ago today, that church was planted in Northwest Detroit. Now we have Pastor Ovi, which is going to be planning in Garden City as a church planning resident here with us. Yes. And we have a granddaughter church, so to speak. Pastor Tyler is planting Refuge Church along with uh, Drew Ansley down in Southwest Detroit. So we've seen God do a multitude, a multitude of things. Yes, give him credit. Give him praise. Nick has been in our pastoral apprentice program, our elder apprentice program, and he now manages Dexter Grinds over on Dexter. We bought a coffee shop. Now, the magical number here at Restore seems to be 15000 because that is what we paid for the coffee shop also. Um, so Nick's doing a, a good job over there. We'll have to tell you that story at some point, but we don't have time. I'm going to invite Mike to come back. And, but that's a, just a brief overview of what God has done, come, some high marks. And in the middle of that, we've got beautiful people like Julia that heard music in the park and walked over, and we were able to baptize her. And it's just a story of grace even there uh, of what God has done here at Restore. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Cleet. I think there's one other slide that tells a picture. Yeah, right there. Uh, so, uh, happy to say Cleet got his first buck this week. Yeah. And then he, he shot a little doe that makes their dog Bailey look like a Great Dane. Uh, <laughs> button buck. <laughs> but uh, it was a great week. And, uh, man, it's fun to look back, uh, go down memory lane, and, and see what God has done. But having looked back at what God has done, we now want to look at what we pray God will do. I want to talk to you this morning about the big picture. As a father of a big family and an inner city church planter who likes to go out with his wife on a date from time to time, I have become friends with a guy named Mr. Groupon. Some of you have met him as well. And Mr. Groupon, our second year here, connected me to a restaurant called Coach Insignia. Um, it was on the, it's, it's closed now. It was on the 73rd floor of the, I still call it the, Ren, the Renaissance Center. And it was a beautiful meal. I mean, the food was exquisite, all three bites of it that they give you like on a triangle-shaped plate to make it look like you have more. You got to go to Burger King ahead of time just to, you know, get some food in your belly. But it was a great night out. 
And aside from the stunning sight of my wife seated right across the table from me, as I looked over her shoulder, the way they positioned us on the north side of the tower, I could see with my very own eyes in one scan, one survey, the entire layout of the city of Detroit. It, it was really stunning, quite frankly. The incredible perspective. I was there, 73 stories up above the brokenness and the abandoned lots and the beauty and the people. I was above it all, and I could see the big picture and one incredible perspective of what Detroit was about. And I have to tell you, again, it was, it was stunning to see the way the city was laid out, Grand River and Gratiot, all the roads, Woodward, all of that. There's something about seeing the big picture of something, isn't there? My hope is, in the minutes that we have together to now, under God's word, is to give us just a freshened view of the big picture of what eternity is all about and what we should be about right here and now in the gritty now and now. We're not going to go to the Renaissance building. We are going to go to the towering heights of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, 6, and 7. My point is not to give you some end time scheme of how things end up, only to show you how things end up. And what we're going to see is three plain but profound truths from these chapters in the book of Revelation of what eternity is about. I'm going to use three theological terms for those who are into such things, and then I'm going to spell it out in basic language for the rest of us. We're going to see what eternity is about. Are you all with me? Number one, eternity is doxological. Now, what in the world does that mean? The word doxa, the New Testament word for glory is the word doxa. Claire told me that I should join Pastor Cleet up on the worship team. Uh, I never will do that, as he was leading. But you know the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? Okay, that wasn't too bad, was it? All right. So we're doxa. That's the New Testament word for glory, praiseworthiness of something. The Old Testament word is the word kavod. It means the weightiness of something. Eternity is about God being glorified. Are you with me? Eternity is about the weightiness of God being put on eternal display for his people. And you can see that with just a few brushstrokes from Revelation chapter 7 as Ping read it a while ago. Let me just show you real quickly. It says in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, I saw what kind of multitude? A great multitude. A great multitude. There's, have you ever been in the company of like thousands of people at one time? You ever been maybe to the mall in D.C. during some kind of uh, uh, inauguration or a festival or something? Or Penn State, thank you for wearing that shirt. That's very ungodly. Um, okay, but you know, if you watched the game last night, there's a, over, I think they had like a, a, almost a record, 106,000 people there at that stadium at Penn State, right? And there's, if you've ever been in the company of a great multitude, there's something weighty about it, isn't it? 
There's a weightiness to it as you just see that many people. That's what's being communicated here. There's a great multitude. And notice the position they're in. What's their position? They're sitting on their hands, got their hands in their pockets. What's their position? Y'all got to preach with me today, all right? What is their position? They're standing. What does that communicate? I think it communicates respect. You've heard me use this illustration before. I'll use it again. When I was in the Marine Corps, you're in the barracks, you're doing whatever, clean your weapons, getting your stuff together. But when a senior ranking officer stepped on deck, what did somebody yell? Oten hut! And everybody comes rigidly to the position of attention, standing on their feet. Why? Out of respect for the weightiness and the gravitas and the rank and the authority of the person who just stepped on deck. That's what's being happening here. Then they're holding palm branches in their hands. Maybe a modern equivalent would be thunder sticks at a ball game, you know, really loud. Only these are palm branches and they communicate victory. They communicate royalty. Remember that Palm Sunday? They're waving palm branches. And then notice what they're doing with their larynxes, with their vocal cords. What are they doing? Crying out with a loud voice. They're actually doing what people do at ball games. They just won't do at church. Or during iPhone releases or something silly like that. There is a weightiness that's being reflected here. It's a doxological scene. Now, what I want to do, at least I'll walk you back to it. You don't have to go back there. You can't even want the chapter four. Because it just paints a little bit more of a picture of this doxological scene of eternity. You would go back to chapter four, and you would find that there's a throne there. A throne upon which the Almighty himself is seated. And around this throne, there are 24 other smaller thrones upon which are seated elders or angelic beings. And they have golden crowns on their heads. And then there's peals of thunder and bolts of lightning just falling everywhere. And I think from our, you know, 21st century perspective, we can, we can read that like, I don't know, like, like you're out in the country somewhere sitting under some oak tree during a rainstorm drinking sweet tea. Oh, isn't this beautiful and quaint rain coming down? But there's nothing quaint about this. The Apostle John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is tapping into the most raw and violent display of power known to humanity at that time, a lightning and thunderstorm. It would, in, in, in contemporary language, it would be like, I saw hydrogen bombs going off everywhere. That's what's being communicated. And then to continue to paint this scene of God being glorified and awed and revered, there's a praise band up there. Now, one thing about praise bands, praise bands have always been kind of weird people. Uh, oh, sorry, okay, all right. But, you know, there's a difference, you know. Musical people, you know, they wear like wool hats even when it's warm out and stuff like that, right? I wish I had the gifting that our musicians did. But this praise band is really weird. Well, there's four beings, and they'll have a different face. One's got the face of an ox, and one's got the face of a lion. 
and one of an eagle and one of a human, and they have wings and eyes all over. And here's what is constantly on heaven's top 40 playlist. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and is and is to come. Shylin didn't write that. This is scripture, okay? No. And then the scene just amps up even more because remember those 24 beings on these smaller thrones? They fall down before the Lord and they worship him. And what do they do with those golden crowns? They cast them at his feet. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory. That's precisely my point. Eternity is about God being glorified. As a matter of fact, if that's all we ever knew, we would wonder how in the world could us mere mortal sinners ever get near and dear to an eternal, thrice holy, transcendent God. We think we can just waltz up into God's presence any old way we want. If you go to the Bible, you understand, no, no, he's holy and we are sinful. And there's a whole mess of stories in the Bible that shows you what happens when unforgiven sin touches transcendent holiness. I mean, good night. He's getting the law of Moses up on Mount Sinai. If you even touch that holy mountain in unauthorized fashion, you're smacked down, baby. Uzziah. He's just trying to do God a favor. The ark's looking like it's going to tip over. He just touches that ark, and what happens? Bam, struck down. Ask Nadab and Abihu. They bring their own fire. They bring strange fire up in the temple. They don't worship the way God says to worship. They do it their way, and what happens? Oh, one of those lightning bolts fries them. See, this is all we ever knew. We would wonder, how in the world could we ever get near and dear to the eternal transcendent God? Because eternity, number one, is about God being glorified. Number two, eternity is not just doxological about God being glorified. It is, here's the word, soteriological. In other words, it's about God being worshipped for his salvation. Let me tell you about a scene that will never happen. You're a Christian, and I'm a Christian. The Lord has returned, and we've gone home to him, and we're now in his presence in, in heaven. You're not going to look at me and say, man, this joint shirt is sweet. Have no idea how I got here, but man, I love it here. Hey, how did we get here? And I respond, I don't know, but I love it up here too. Categorically, no. The point I'm trying to make is we are never, ever, 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 ever going to get over why it is we are safely and satisfyingly in the presence of an eternal transcendent God. Never going to get over it. Because you have these words, they're put on blast, they're so simple, but they're so profound. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, this is what people are crying out. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to who? The Lamb. Now you know what the word salvation means maybe? It means being saved from your sin. And Lamb, when they heard, listen, when they heard the word Lamb, they didn't think of that sweet little 
stuffed animal on your little girl's bed. They're thinking of vicarious, bloody sacrifice. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said that during the Passover festival, they would sacrifice so many lambs that the brook Kidron, running out of Jerusalem down off the Temple Mount, would literally run red with the blood from the runoffs from from those thousands and thousands of sacrifices. Now, for point one, we went back to chapter four. I want us to go back to chapter five. I'll take you back there anyway. In chapter five... There's this scroll. It's, it's, it's got seven seals on it. Maybe you've read about it before. It is, in effect, the title deed of the universe. And it's almost like a will as well. And like wills today, wills are not opened. They are not unsealed until the person who gave the will, what? Dies. That's exactly right. And that's why a mighty angel swoops in and cries out, well, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? And what does John do? John starts weeping loudly. Not because he just watched a Hallmark movie, but because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. So then one of those elders comes in and says, hey, John, weep no more. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and prevailed and is able to take the scroll and to break the seals. To which we should then ask the question, well, what is it about Jesus that allows him to conquer in the way that he describes and thus open up the title deed of the universe? You should ask that question. And you get to... Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, which very well might be the most, and I say this without an ounce of exaggeration, very well might be the most stunning verse in all of Scripture. You are now in the heavenly seeing the big picture. And in chapter 5, verse 12, let me just read it. It is so powerful. I'm sorry, verse 6, stunning scene. The spotlight swoops from the 4 and the 24 down with laser precision. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been what? Now, hold on a second. What does that look like? What? What? You know, there's obviously some poetic and metaphorical language going on here, but what do you mean a lamb standing as though it had been slain? What does that even look like? Slain, but standing. Crucified, but resurrected. Dead, but now alive. Do you see the weight of this? Do you see the import of this? We're never going to ever, 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 ever going to get over why it is we are safely and satisfyingly in God's presence because there was a lamb slain but now standing, dead but now alive, crucified but now risen. Man. And then there's this threefold praise chorus. It's the four and 24. And then it's myriads and myriads of angels. And then it's all creation. And they are crying out, worthy 
is the Lamb. We're never going to get over our salvation. Why are we so ho-hum about it right now? Huh? Why can't we hear the gospel and our hearts don't beat? Huh? Never going to get over this. This is, this is eternally going to fuel our worship. I keep on dropping my Bible. <laughs> we all make mistakes. <laughs> you got that right. Never was a true word, Vincent. Thank God for the cross. And here's the thing. We're never going to forget the cross. It's why we're in the Lord's presence. It's why we're near and dear to the eternal transcendent God. So here's what we've seen so far. Eternity is doxological, which means eternity is about God being what? Eternity is soteriological, which means God is being glorified for? Now third and finally, eternity is multicultural. Eternity is about God being glorified for his salvation by all peoples. It's just so plain. Revelation 7 and verse 9 once again could not make this point any plainer. People from every ethnos, ethnicity, you can see it right there on the screen. Tribes and peoples and languages. That's, that's, that's who's in the scene. That's who's there. And by the way, this is that combination, not always that same word order, but those four words appear seven or eight times through the book of Revelation. Now, one time it's in a negative sense, the peoples of the world banding together against God. Don't we see that? But the other seven times, it's a preview and it's a picture of eternity. All kinds of people together. Can you imagine the variation in that scene? It's going to be stunning. There's going to be potlucks where you don't have to put food on the plate and then kind of like try to throw it away because that really wasn't that good, okay? <laughs> you know, who made that? Um, can you imagine the variation of the food? Can you imagine the variation of, 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 of the aesthetics, the beauty? Multicultural people from every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue. If, we, if the church is a rug, it's not some dull, monochromatic, industrial carpet that the vendor comes and drops off on Monday and then replaces on Friday. No, no, no. If the people of God are, is a rug... It's a mosaic. It's a tapestry woven together of all kinds of different strands. Woven together, I just want to emphasize this, on the loom of God's intentionality. Salvation belongs to who, it says? What can you claim about your salvation? What did you contribute to it? Huh? What did you contribute to it? Anybody contribute anything to salvation? Ain't a licking thing we contribute. The only thing we contribute is the sin that required it. And you can't even take credit for your faith. You ain't going to be breaking your arm over back, patting your head, saying, boy, I made a great decision in eternity. Salvation belongs to our God. Think about this. Before you, if you're in Christ, before you were a glimmer in your great, 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 keep on going back granddaddy's eye, God said, not because he saw anything in you, but because of his love for you, you're going to be mine. And in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. And when he came, he came to save his church. 
And he will have the full reward of his suffering. And I'll tell you this, in time, you didn't know it, you didn't know it, but the Spirit was moving in on you. And the Spirit was opening your eyes to your sin and to the sufficiency of Christ. I like to say it this way, the Father sought you. The Son bought you. And in the fullness of time, the Spirit caught you and brought you home to the family. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Intentionality. Here's the other thing. The loom of his intentionality and the loom of his sacrifice. I just go back one more time to Revelation chapter 5. This is what, this is the praise song going on right now. For you were slain, verse 9. That ain't some little kind word, by the way. You were slaughtered. You were executed. It's a strong word in the Greek. For you were slain, and by your what? By your blood. By your blood, you, were, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Eternity is about God being glorified for his salvation. That's the big picture. Here's the rub. Jesus wants that now. You remember the Lord's Prayer? Better called the disciples' prayer. He was giving them not a formula to pray when they said how to teach us to pray, but giving them a model. And Jesus said, I want you to pray this idea, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? So what's heaven about? God being glorified for his salvation by all kinds of people, right? Jesus says, I want, to, I, want you to, I want that to be seen on earth right now, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, after the crucified, resurrected Jesus um, brought all his followers together, and he, right before he ascended into heaven, he gave them some marching orders. And those marching orders, they stand to this very nanosecond. That you we ought to go and do all the what? Into all the world and make disciples. And that verse that Pastor Cleet referenced, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says that when the whole, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. John Stott, powerful commentary on the book of Acts, says, the book of Acts could be summarized like this. That what began in the Jewish capital of the world, Jerusalem, ends with the gospel going to the pagan capital of the world at that time, Rome. And if you read through the book of, uh, of Acts, you find the gospel breaking through every possible barrier. Linguistic barriers, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Cultural barriers, right? Economic barriers, age barriers, um, ethnic barriers, every kind of barrier. Well, nothing but chump change when God wanted that gospel to move forward. And here's how it happened. You know there are two kinds of churches represented in the book of Acts, stereotypically. You have a Jerusalem church and you have an Antioch church. Now, God told them, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it was just on the screen, that you will be my witnesses to where? Jerusalem, but where else? Judea and Samaria, where else? 
to the ends of the earth. And God said, don't hunker down. He said, you got to move out, right? Y'all got to move out because this good news has got to spread. I want people to come to me. They didn't exactly obey. I mean, can you blame them? They had a really great launch day. 3,000 people came to Christ. You, you ever had a launch day like that? Pretty good day, right? That's not, that might not even include women and children, so there could be more that, that came to Christ. So, I mean, they had a building program to worry about. And they had a WANA, bang, in men's and women's ministry and outreach. I mean, they had tons of stuff to worry about. So, you know, they didn't exactly have missional urgency. They, they did not. More, it was a status quo complacency. God never intended for us just to reach into ourselves. We are to reach in and build each other up, but ultimately so that we can reach out and reach the lost. God never intended us for us to become a wax museum and all we do is tell the story of the past. We, we should thank God for the past, but he also wants us not only to look back, but to look forward. But they didn't move out. Now, God is sovereign, right? God is large and in charge. He says, I am the God who declares the end and from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, I will accomplish all my will and my counsel shall stand. Well, God is never being sovereign, the author of sin, but he uses everything. And I think God takes out of his uh, tool bag a pineapple grenade. And he takes the pin in his mouth and he rips the pin out and opens up the spoon on this grenade. Counts one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, and rolls it up into the church of Jerusalem. In other words, he allows persecution to come their way. And when persecution comes, boom! What does it say the church of Jerusalem did finally? Well, I heard the word. Where is it? It was right out of the book of Acts. They scattered. That's exactly what they did. They scattered in obedience to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because God is a missionary who won't quit. And he sends them out. Now you go several chapters later, and you're going to come across a new church called the church at Antioch. Antioch, they didn't have access to any church growth consultants. They never read 40 Days of Purpose. They had no Twitter account. They would have looked at you funny if you said something about Facebook. They had no money, no resources, nothing. And by conservative estimates, this church planted between 20 and 25 other churches. And what's more, the weightiness and significance of their impact is seen in you. Because most of us here can trace our, all of us here, I should say, can trace our spiritual lineage to that church planting church, that missionary sending church. If you're in Christ, you can trace your spiritual family tree back to the church at Antioch. And I just, I think there's a lesson there for us, Restore, that when we hold people and resources loosely for church planting, God sort of looks over the porch of heaven and says, no, I want to invest in that. Here's some more resources. Here's some more people. Zooming out, final slide here, Ian, thank you. 
the big picture is God being glorified for his salvation by all peoples. Jesus wants that to be displayed right now as he, we await his return. And those little, let's zoom in, zoom out, right? You zoom out, the big picture looks like us planting churches. So thankful for Ovi and Emma and the crew and excited for them doing the same thing and us continuing to partner. Zooming in, though, it's the fruit of souls one to Jesus Christ and the fruit of changed lives and lives that are being changed. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Pretty clear verse. And it says that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, like, we're talking about fruit from high level and low level. And when the fruit is born, whether it's churches planted, people brought to Christ, people change and manifesting the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, all of that, who gets the glory? God. Now, when is he going to get that glory? When will he get it? Is it just the future? Because we've been talking a little bit about the future. I want to end with Ephesians 3.10. This is, this is such a powerful concept. You see, I got the earth right there. Nice little clip art, isn't it? Huh? Pretty good. Ephesians 3.10 says that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is he saying right there? That right now, right now, angelic beings look at what's going on in the church and they're just blown away at the glory of God. Now, I'm doing something what my homiletics professor would have said don't ever do. Never end a sermon by looking down and reading a quote. But that's exactly what I'm going to do because these guys, I just came across these sermons this morning. I was diving into the subject a little bit more. And the, these two quotes encapsulate what it's all about. So let me read it. This first one is Brian Chapel. He says, now here in the third chapter we learn that we who come from every tribe and nation, people and personality, are on display as a church before the heavenly host as a testimony to the wisdom of God the creator. The heavenly host, these angels, look at those of us who are in the church with all of our sin, with all of our differing personalities, with all of our cultural prejudices and color differences, and says, how did God do that? How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures together in one body to praise him? The manifold wisdom of the creator God really is great. And he goes on to write, by our unity in Christ's body, the church, we are preaching to the angels right now about the power, wisdom, and glory of the God who made us and has saved us. This is the apex of Paul's thought about the church. Now, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have to read you this quote. I hope you're not getting lost in this quote. Are you getting lost in these quotes? They're, 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 they're powerful to me. The result of all of this is that we are entitled to say that the saved church is the final and supreme manifestation of God's wisdom. 
We have seen how he reconciled his own attributes, namely his holiness with our sinfulness. But at the same time, in a very striking way, he has brought about what is particularly in the mind of the apostle at this point in Ephesians chapter 3. Namely, he's brought Jew and Gentile together. This is amazing. Jew and Gentile seem hopelessly irreconcilable, irreconcilable. They were entirely different. They were traditional enemies with all of their traditions at variance with one another. The angels had seen all those ages the world divided into Jew and Gentile and had contemplated the apparently hopeless problem of humanity. They watched the futile attempts of the greatest philosophers to deal with it as they wrote about their utopias, and they still do it but there appears to be no solution. But now they see it happening in the church. Jew and Gentile are brought together in the church, not as a sort of temporary truce, not by putting some kind of force between them to prevent prevent them from getting at one another and killing one another, no. Not by some police action, no, they are made one, made fellow members in one body, the body of Jesus Christ. How many times have men thought that the Christian church had failed and come to her end? How many times have they laughed at her and ridiculed her and almost buried her? But as they were about to put her in the grave and deliver their funeral orations, suddenly there is a resurrection, a revival. And so God confounds his enemies and displays his wisdom. So the question comes to this. Are we reflectors in our little way of this bright shining of the eternal wisdom. Are we that, church? Are we reflectors of this? And then the other thing is this. Are you somewhere in the spectrum? 